today's reading is Romans 15, verse 1 to 24. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weakness of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us must please his neighbor for his good in order to build him up, for even the Messiah did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written before was written for our instruction, so that through our endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. Now may God, the God of endurance and encouragement, grant you agreement with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a united mind and voice. Therefore, accept one another, just as the Messiah also accepted you to the glory of God. Now I say that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises of the fathers and so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will praise, I will sing psalms to your name. Again it says rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. All the peoples should praise him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to the rule, the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles will hope. Good news for the Gentiles. <laughs> it's us, I believe. Now, many, may, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, my brothers, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, to remind you, I have written to you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God <coughs> to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles serving as a priest of God's good news. My purpose is that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God, for I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to make the Gentiles obedient by the word and deed, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's Spirit. As a result, I fully proclaim the good news about the Messiah from Jerusalem, all the way around to Elysium. So my aim is to evangelize where Christ has not been named, in order that I will not be building on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those with no report of him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. That is why I've been prevented many times from coming to you. But now I no longer have any work to do in these provinces, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you. Whenever I travel to Spain, for I do hope to see you when I pass through, and to be sent on my way there by you, once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Thank you very much. So that's a fair old chunk of scripture we're looking at here. So I'm not going to go into every single 
aspect of it because, like the rest of the Bible, it's so very, very rich. I can see Sue shaking her head. Should I go into more detail? (laughs) So, first off, I want to honor God for getting me here this morning. This was the preach that very nearly didn't happen between bad health, kidney stones, chest infections, and life in general. I am here by the grace of God alone, so thank you, Lord, for that. Uh, I always find it quite reassuring when life seems to be conspiring to keep you away from the pulpit. I'm not not saying I necessarily have anything especially magical to say, except any time the word is preached, God will move. So, shall we? So, Right in verse 1, we, again, just to remind you, we're, this is the penultimate in our series on Romans, so we're in chapter 15. So, verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. I'm reading this from the ESV, by the way. So, Paul opens chapter 15 by echoing the previous chapter, which Rob spoke on a couple of weeks ago. Um, chapter 14 was, was about making sure that we don't trip each other up by encouraging each other to violate our own conscience before God, um, among other things. But I think that was the, the central theme of it. Am I right there, Rob? <laughs> Excellent. So this repetition is a common feature of Paul's writings. Uh, it indicates that this point is something that he recognizes as very important. And it needs to be repeated to make sure that it really hits home. This begs the question... Why is it so important for those stronger in the faith to bear with those who are weaker in the faith? Is it just because it's the Christian thing to do? Is it kind to be kind and to avoid conflict and you know make sure everyone holds hand and sings kumbaya and we're all friends? No. Is it is Paul telling us that it doesn't really matter if a brother or sister is not living out their faith correctly? that we shouldn't necessarily challenge inconsistency and correct wrongdoing? Again, no. Where does accountability come into play? It is a mystery. Here we go, hang on. It says in Proverbs 27, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. I'm just going to leave that there hanging for a moment. So let's read on. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. Verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So this is Paul essentially echoing the teaching of Jesus to his disciples in John 13, 34, where he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. So, building each other up for their good. This is, this is no new teaching Paul's bringing here, but again, it's that repetition to hit home. So, coming back to the question, why is it so important to bear with those who are weaker in the faith? To address this question, see if the clicker works this time. <laughs> All right, didn't realize this was going to be anatomy lesson, did you? So, To to discuss this, I'm going to draw on my experience as a personal trainer, uh, which I'm not anymore, but about six months ago, up to about six months ago, 
I was a personal trainer. Um, when I worked as a personal trainer, I specialized in weight loss, which most personal trainers do, but my specific niche was post-surgical rehab. So I would regularly have people come to me anything between six and 12 weeks after surgery. Uh, mainly, the, the kind of my bread and butter was knee injuries, knees and shoulders. Um, not heads and toes, although that would have been superb. Heads, shoulders, knees, and toes. I'm just trying to think. I think I probably deal with everything apart from heads. That's a different, that's a different discipline altogether. I mean, unless necks count. Anyway, I digress. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> See, I full named him then for interrupting me. Um, so, the first thing I would do after reading their referral notes was ask them, what is it you're hoping to achieve? More often than not, I would get an answer, something along the lines of, I want to get back to running, or I want to get back to squash or golf, or whatever activity it was that usually caused the incident in the first place. My first thought, obviously, would be, well, if you spent a little bit of time looking after yourself in the first place, you wouldn't be seeing me now. But obviously, I held my tongue on that one. Not all thoughts should really be externalized. That's a good lesson. Not the lesson I'm trying to teach now, but just so you know. Uh, I also commonly came across people who were going through this procedure for the second or even third time after trying to progress too quickly after their surgery. Again, this is something we can apply to ourselves in our spiritual lives. You know, the number of times we attempt to do things for the wrong reasons, we are not fully prepared, and we end up making a mess of it. We all do that. I'm guilty of it. We all are. But I would remind them that progress is a process. Sometimes a difficult and an uncomfortable one, but ultimately one that leaves you stronger and more capable of achieving your desired outcome. Bear with me. I know I haven't quite linked it to what I'm talking about just yet. Now, a common knee injury I would come up against was a ruptured or torn ACL, which stands for anterior, which is a fancy word for front, uh, cruciate ligament, which is what you can see up on the screen there. So it's a tiny little bit. It's really, really quite small. Um, the anterior cruciate ligament is a short band of connective tissue uh, that runs diagonally across the middle of the knee. It prevents the tibia, which is the bone in your lower leg, from sliding out of position in front of the, uh, where's the word, the femur. Word dropped out of my head then, had to check my notes. Good job this didn't happen when I was a personal trainer, innit? Whew. Uh, so yeah, it stops, stops the lower leg bone sliding out in front of the upper leg bone, as well as providing stability to the knee. So when this relatively small and seemingly weak piece of connective tissue is damaged or even severed completely, the results are quite dramatic. People can't walk, and because of pain and instability, the risk of further injury is massive. And if left untreated, it can, it can really, really just destroy the knee joint. In short, they're not only no longer fit for their sport, but they're not fit for life if we don't get this sorted. All this is to say, that a body that is in a state of dysfunction is not a body capable of working effectively. In the same way as the body of Christ, we, the church, 
can't be effectively engaged in mission if our heart toward one another is not right. Paul then goes on to say, in verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, just as an ACL that becomes separated from its attachment results in pain and loss of function, and ultimately the destruction of the knee joint, our sinful nature also results in a painful separation. As a result, we are unable to walk properly, fully in our relationship with God, and unable to fully engage with mission. But just as a surgeon can open up that knee joint and intervene and reattach and restore what was separated, so Paul reminds us that Jesus intervened on our behalf. Here, Paul reminds us of our ultimate example and the embodiment of this principle. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, bearing with all mankind despite the way he was treated and the sin that God hated, and, and, despite the way he was treated and all the sin that was in the world that God hated. Paul also reminds us of the cost of all sin. For the cost of sin for all time is paid. There is no undealt with sin. It's either paid for in hell or in Jesus. So that we can be restored. So with this in mind, this sets the scene for what Paul is talking about here. We aren't just to bear with one another because it's the nice Christian thing to do. No. Just as I would tell my clients, if they ever wanted to play squash again or run again, they had to take it slow. Not that they had to to go slower than they could, but they did have to take it slow. Follow the program, bear with their limitations, and work within the maximum of your capability. The reason we bear with those who are weaker in faith is because we are working towards a common purpose and we want everyone involved because that is what we're told to do. To go into the world and to spread the news, to be the light in the darkness, the salt and the light, to see his kingdom come and his will done on earth as in heaven. To do this, we need unity. And unity comes through bearing with one another in our weakness, and encouraging other to live as the Bible teaches, supporting and discipling each other as we become more like Christ and walk in the fullness of our calling. Verse 4 goes on to say, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. So this is Paul's rally cry, as far as I can see, towards a unified missional church body. Again, unpacking the idea that through welcoming one another as Christ welcomed you, the church body becomes fit and equipped to glorify God with one voice. To go back to my analogy, it's only when all the components of a knee joint are present and functioning properly within their own limitations 
that the knee becomes strong and stable enough to perform its job properly. Verse 8 goes on to say, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show that God's truthfulness in order to... to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I love that. I love that. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Not just have a bit of hope. Not like a tiny little light in this expanse of darkness. We are talking about abounding. That's a lot of light. That's a lot of hope. Here we see Paul using a number of scriptures to illustrate this point again. That through Jesus, there is no need for division between the Jews and the Gentiles that comprised the early Roman church. There was a lot of conflict between them at this point as to who was in charge of the church and who had the truth. What Paul is saying here, that through Jesus, we are one. Which, as Dave pointed out, great news for the Gentiles, that's us. In this particular section, we can see Again, by the repetitive use of Old Testament scripture, that Paul is trying to address the Jews in a way that they are used to. The Gentiles would not have been as familiar with, with the Old Testament as the Jews. So they probably would have, have kind of grasped onto this point earlier on in this chapter. But the Jews were very much religiously into the, the Old Testament, and that, that they kind of needed that structure. Um, so, yeah, this is Paul being an example in bearing with other people's weakness to an extent. Again, this continued repetition marks out that this is a key point for the life of a missional church. Having thoroughly addressed this issue of supporting each other in various stages of faith and unity in the body, Paul takes a moment to be sure that his message is coming across in the way it's intended. The reason he does this is because it would be unusual for an apostle to write this kind of instructive letter to a church that they didn't plant themselves. Therefore, he just wants to clarify his intentions and engage with them. He does that, chapter, uh, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's at this point, Paul shifts the focus from bearing with one another, unity in the body, to 
ministry, his ministry, his personal mission. Verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring to the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power and signs of wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way round to, I can't really be sure on how to pronounce this word, but Illyricum, yeah, we'll go with that, uh, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Now, for us, that's, that's quite a difficult thing to achieve. In the, in the days of the internet and the TV, it, you'd have to go to incredible lengths to find places where Christ hasn't already been named. So we are forced to build on someone else's foundation. Uh, when we, when we evangelize, when we speak to people, we have to contend with people's broken ideas of who God is uh, because of various things in their life, traumatic experiences, uh, issues with, with fatherhood, uh, and the flawed witness of professing Christians. Again, there have been times in my life where I have been known to be a Christian and done things that don't really testify to that. Again, I think that's something we can all relate to on, on some level. So yeah, that's what we've got to contend with. But in this section, this is Paul, he's demonstrating his desire to go and spread where the gospel has not been heard before. Continuing on, 21, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see him, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So, like I said, Paul is referring to his personal ministry here and his, his, his personal life on mission. But for us... It's less important what he's saying here and much more important what he's modeling for us. That's not to say that the words of Paul are insignificant because that is certainly not the case. But only he can live out his call to ministry and only we can live out ours. See, Paul is not just following the orders of the Great Commission to go into the world and spread the gospel as Jesus said. But he himself is following the example, the pattern of ministry set by Jesus. As we see in Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 30, we are all individually called by God to mission. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That's us, every single person in this room. We are called corporately, we are called individually. In Hebrews 12.1, it tells us that we must throw off everything that hinders and, that the, and the sin that easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Again, that's individually and corporate. There are no passengers 
in the mission of the church. As much as sometimes we'd like to just jump on the gospel train and go for a little ride, there are no passengers. Everyone's in the engine room. Remember, we are not running the race we want to run. We are running the race marked out for us. We don't run this race to please ourselves either, but him. It's not always easy, and it's not always fun. In fact, sometimes it's horrible. Sometimes it's painful and really uncomfortable. But it's, it's but it is our race to complete. Something my dad says is many Christians seek to be fulfilled, but God seeks that we should be filled full. Which there is a lot of truth in that. Now, I saw something on Facebook the other day, and I quite liked it, and I think it applies quite well here. So, it's the analogy of a coffee cup. If I go into wherever, a coffee shop, buy myself a cup of coffee, walking out the door, and I bump into someone, what, what spills out my cup? Coffee. coffee. I know, I know. Well done. Well, that's why you're the boss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> coffee. Well, whatever we're carrying in that cup whether it's hot chocolate or milk or whatever, whatever is in that cup is what spills out when we bump into things. That's true of us in our lives. If I'm walking along and I, you know, I think I'm a good person, I don't, I don't swear and you know, I do all these nice things and, ah! and then I start swearing because I've just hit my foot, that's because it's in me. That's because there is something in me that I have not dealt with and it spills out. We can only do, we can only get, give out what we have within. We, we can only engage with God, we can only engage with the world in as much as we engage with God. So, in this situation, we need to be filled with love for the lost. We need to be filled with a passion for deeper relationship with God. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that when life bumps into us, what we spill out is not us, but God. What we spill out is the love of Jesus in these situations. So let's look at Jesus as our example and roadmap for a life on mission. Because what better example is there? If anyone knows of any, you're wrong. <laughs> so, there are many things we can draw out from the life of Jesus on mission. I'm going to focus on three main points. First of all, we have to know our mission. Jesus was a missionary in its purest form. You see, a missionary is someone sent by God, like it says in John 3.16, all right. Sneaky preview. <laughs> a missionary is someone sent by God, as it says in John 3:16, to a place where God is not known in order to tell the people who live there of his love and great power and their need to repent and be united with him. Even before Jesus was born, God planned that his life would be on mission. 
In Luke 2:49, we see that at the age of just 12 years old, Jesus already knew he was on a mission, that he had to be in his father's house. He didn't choose to be in his father's house. He had to be there because he knew he was on mission. One translation puts it that he would, was about his father's business. And he wasn't talking about Joseph. Before we were born again, God's plan for our lives was that we should also be on mission. So the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18-20 was the confirmation of what God had always intended for us. As we look at the New Testament, Jesus had a clear understanding of his life on mission from the beginning. Before we can engage in mission, we have to know that it, what it is and that it is for us. Next, we have to live out the mission. Knowing our mission alone is not enough. We need to actually apply ourselves to it and get stuck in. It's obvious from the life of Jesus that being on mission was not just something that he did, it was who he was. It was in his DNA. And as his children, that DNA gets passed to us. So it's in ours as well. For example, in John's Gospel, he makes seven I am statements. These show that his very identity is missional. He tells the disciples, I have come to do the works of him who sent me. And in this passage, in Romans 15, Paul describes himself as a priest whose duty is performing, sorry, performing, proclaiming the gospel, something we all share. A priest is a significant word to use here, because a priest is not just a priest when he's serving in the temple. In the same way, an off-duty police officer is always a police officer, whether they're on duty or off-duty. Being a priest wasn't just a job, it was an identity. Sharing the gospel is not just something that we have to do occasionally, but it's the core of who we are. Knowing this affected the way Jesus lived so much that he took every opportunity to share God's truth. Whether it was to a crowd of 5,000 people, a woman at a well, his friends, his disciples, all the children who came to him for blessing, and even those who opposed him. People were healed. He went to the broken, to the downtrodden, the outcasts, and he loved them. He dealt with sin that he saw. He cast out demons and he challenged social standards wherever they conflicted with God's will. These are all things that we must do. This is not optional. Third point. is we have to share the mission. Throughout the New Testament, there is a great emphasis on us knowing who we are. As the children of God, it is fully expected that we should grow to be more like our fathers. Many of you who know my father, if you close your eyes, because I've got a bit of a chest infection, I've got just enough bass to almost pass for him. He's got a much bassier voice than I have. I'm not jealous. But yeah, as children of God, it's fully expected that we should grow to be more like our fathers and that we mature over time into the fullness of what God has for us as part of his family. We don't 
become saved and instantly become like Jesus. It is a process. Much like a torn ACL, when that gets surgically repaired, it takes time. You have to take small steps. You have to bear with your weakness. But if you have a goal in mind and you're working towards that, you are going to get there. Unlike an ACL, which is an achievable goal on our own, this is not something we can achieve on our own. There's nothing we can do to get there. But we have an active role in responding to God as he develops that in us. So, I mentioned the feeding of the 5,000 before. Oh, I've gone too far, gone too far. The feeding of the 5,000. Now, this is actually quite a valuable picture of, of, of shared mission. See, the miraculous power that transformed the bread and fish was all God. But it happened in the hands of the disciples. Again, the disciples could not possibly do that miracle, as we cannot become like Jesus on our own. But it happened in their hands because Jesus delegated his authority to them so that the miracle actually happened in their hands as they carried out the task they had been given. So it was in their response to the, the authority of God that Jesus placed upon them that the miracle happened. See, the content of our mission is to transform the world. That's all God. And without his spirit, we won't be able to do it. But that mission has been given by God into our hands. If the disciples had simply taken the bread, not passed it out, not exercised their response to Jesus' request, then the miracle would not have been, it wouldn't have been experienced. No one would know. God's glory would not have been shown that day. But Jesus trusted them. And he empowered them to do what he asked. It was absolutely necessary for the disciples to be obedient to the mission of distributing that bread and fish for the miracle to occur. In the same way, it is essential that we faithfully share our mission with each other and step out in it. So that the miraculous transformation that the gospel brings can affect the world around us and the people in it who so desperately need it. It's worth pointing out, Jesus was fully capable of doing what needed to be done on his own. But he chose to raise up disciples. This is a perfect illustration of how we, raise, of, of how we bear with each other in one of our weaknesses. In, in our weaknesses. Jesus, undoubtedly the strongest faith ever, for all time, bearing with, with us and with the disciples who are weaker in faith but together to achieve a common goal. Jesus took this random group of teenagers from various socioeconomic backgrounds and met them where they were. He took fishermen and made them into the most incredible men of faith, who, following the death of Jesus, created ripples in history we still feel 2,000 years later. Jesus knew that uniting others in a life on mission is the way to reach more people and bring them to a place of knowing the Father.
That, that is our mission. Our mission is to step out in response to God's call on our, our lives. And we are all called to run the race that he has set out for us. It may look different for you, it may look different for you, but it's all part of one race. And the end goal is to bring people to a place of knowing the Father. So this is where we get interactive, because I like doing that. What does a life on mission actually look like for us now? Like I said, there is difference between Paul's mission and our mission. We live 2,000 years later. So what steps can we take to bring out the mission that is on us? Anyone? Throw something at me. I tell you what, let's take it back to to this. Super slick, I know. Where does the mission start? No, no, go on, shout stuff out, that's great. Yes. Exactly, exactly. Where are we now? Verse 14, I'm satisfied that you yourselves, blah, 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 blah. Nope, that's not the right place. That may well be it. Read it for me, Dave. There we go. Exactly. And it also talks about encouraging each other with the word. So those two things go hand in hand. You know, we need to get into the word. And not just for ourselves, we need to speak it into each other's lives. We are on a mission together. The Great Commission is the Great Co-Mission. That's another thing my dad says. We are not on mission alone. It is a co-mission. We have a room full of co-pilots here. So yeah, it's, we need to get into the Word. We need to dig in. We need to pray. You know, revival starts on our knees. In prayer. And through diving into the word and letting that read us back. We don't just read the word, it reads us. It speaks into our life. So yeah, that is a key component. That is one thing we need to do. Well, several things we need to do. We need to get into the word. We need to share it with each other. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit fills us. We need to pray for the world that, they, that God prepares their hearts for us. That, so that when we step out and we speak these, the life to these people, that they are prepared to respond. Okay. So how do we do that? How, like Some people are evangelists and you see them on the street and they're really good at preaching. But what does that look like for us in real life?
Do, do we have to all go and get a soapbox? Yeah. Yeah. We don't need necessarily... If, if there is a call on your life to evangelize on a mass scale, great. Great. But for all of us, that, that's not everyone's calling. We have to work within our calling. So every one of us in this room has a circle of friends, a circle of acquaintances. So how do we bring God? How do we spill our coffee cup over those people? It's in conversations. It's in real life. It's in how we treat, our, we treat people. How when it's icy, you go out, you defrost your car, you go and defrost your neighbor's car. You know, it's... It's those things, those things that are outside of the norm. That's what attracts people. That's, that's where we have the opportunity to show them the gospel. People, a lot of people have heard the gospel. Not enough people have seen it. So we need to pray for opportunities to show God's love to people. We need to pray for conversations to happen. We need to be active Any other thoughts? Don't be shy. Okay. Well, I'm going to close in prayer now. Because I want you guys to... I don't, I don't want to just talk because I'm up here. There's no, there's no sense speaking for the sake of speaking. Words are only useful when they're anointed. Certainly from here. Absolutely. Rachel wants to share something. Thank to this earlier and I thought that seems a bit silly I won't share it and I wasn't quite sure sorry I wasn't quite sure if I was meant to share it or not but then when I, woke, I, was, I had to do a little job and when I walked back in you had the pictures up and I thought I should have shared that basically three of us have been on it well four of us have been on a first aid course at the end of this week and I got to the end of a first aider is somebody who is qualified to give first aid treatment in the event of an injury or illness and you become the responsible person but not the responsible person but the appointed person to do a job mm -hmm. now it led me to think i was like lord what what do you want to say this morning and this all came to me and i was like first aid i can't talk about first aid and then <laughs> i thought to myself if we have the spirit within us we are all appointed people to go and do a job Mm -hmm. And we have our first aid box. And one of the first things, or the third thing we had to do, was call for help. We're not on our own because God is completely with us when we do this stuff. But Sue and I and, and Kelly looked at each other at the end of the three days and we were like, I don't feel like I can do this. And all three of us were like, there's, there's no way. You know, if you're in a situation, you feel like you're not capable of doing it. And it's the same with this you will not feel ready. You'll always think, oh, I need to go and do that, or I need to study more, or I need to spend more time in prayer. In the, when we find ourselves in the situation of, of, like, where we need to share our faith, it almost feels like crisis, and like, oh, what do I do first? But we'll never feel ready, but we need to know that God is doing the work and not us. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what I thought, thought he was saying. Um, and, and that actually it's, it's his job we just have to do what he tells us <laughs> excellent and that's it and as a first aider I don't know if 
unless it's changed since I did it. They told me when I left, once I'd completed, they said, you are now, as a first aider, compelled to stop and help someone if you see an accident and there is no one else on scene. And we are compelled. But we are not legally compelled, we are compelled by love. We are compelled by love to step out where there is need and step in and be God in those situations. Not be God, maybe the choice. Demonstrate the love of God in those situations. The truth of God in those situations. Lift each other up and support each other as we step forward into our God-given mission. Amen. Amen. Father, to you be the glory. Lord, anything I've said that resonates with anyone here is only because of the truth of God. None of this is from me. Lord, you are sovereign. Empower us. Embolden us, Lord, to step out in mission. To speak to our friends. Lord, we pray. I pray for everyone in this room that they have opportunity for at least two conversations about you this week. Lord, I pray that everyone gets at least one opportunity to show your love. You are good. We praise you, Lord. Thank you for the honor of representing you on this earth. Amen.